You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Terry's a girl who wanted to be taken seriously. I am going to be a reporter. But her body kept getting in the way. Pretty girl, you could be a model. Sometimes I just wish I were a guy. Well, you know, the male body needs sex at all times. It's a living hell. So to prove to the men in her life she had a mind, Terry decided to try life as a guy. How do I look? Dashing. My zipper's open. That was the dashing point. What a fox. Dresses like Elvis Costello. Looks like the karate kid. I'm gonna get him. Today's woman has the freedom to be just as sick and perverted as us guys. She learned their secrets. I have surprise jock inspections three times a week. A word to the wise. And dated their women. Yeah, but I got this one rule. I never go out with girls who say bitch. Now the question is... What's going on? Wait, it gets better. Can a girl tell the boy she loves... Terry's such a stallion. Go on, show me Harry Chet. She's not the man. He thinks she is? Wait a minute, are those what I think they are? Yep, it's one of a kind. My bro. Just one of the guys. She's confused. Of course you're confused. You're wearing my underwear. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Rain Alexander. Hey! Also back in the booth is Mr. Jim Leskowski. There's a half-naked woman in your bedroom feeding pizza to some fish, and she's all yours. This week, we are looking at the 1985 gender swap comedy, Just One of the Guys. Directed by Lisa Gottlieb, the film stars Joyce Heiser as Terry Griffith, a reporter for her school paper who feels she's being discriminated against by her teacher when it comes to a potential summer internship at the Sun Tribune. In order to prove that she has what it takes, she goes undercover as a teenage boy. Like you do. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you haven't seen it, go ahead, check it out. Come on back after you have. We will still be here. So, Rain, when was the first time you saw just one of the guys, and what did you think? 
It was definitely in the mid eighties. Um, you know, I didn't, I sure, certainly didn't see it in the theaters because my parents wouldn't have allowed such a thing. So it probably would have been 87, 88, maybe a couple of years afterwards on VHS as God intended. I have a really interesting relationship with this film because, you know, at the time I was a closeted trans girl, so I wasn't really out. I was uh, being compelled to live as a as a boy, and I was on my school paper. When I came to this, I, like, really actually over-identified with it, you know? I'm like, this is actually – this is me in a lot of ways. Like, I'm being compelled to do this, but, like, nobody was buying – nobody was giving me an internship at the Sun Tribune for it because <laughs> I was still, you know, kind of closeted. But it's such an interesting thing to over-identify with this film when, you know, maybe on the surface, you know, maybe I would have – you would have thought I would have identified more with, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, the Tootsie or, you know, like uh, uh, the Ladybugs, which was much later, you know, the the other side of that. But, it, like, those movies were not at all what was resonating with me. And this one, this one kind of scared me and also kind of showed me a, a possibility that uh it took me a long time to like verbalize and 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 understand so i've i've always loved this film and uh i love it even more now for all of its problematic <laughs> you know situations um but it's such a fascinating film and jim how about yourself well, this might have been one of the first movies I watched over and over uh, <laughs> during my preteen years, kind of like this, and a, and a couple years later, this kind of underrated gem called um, Three O'clock High. Like both of those were kind of my jams. <laughs> I just I just watched this a lot because I think it was always on HBO, uh, and I later learned like that the head of HBO at the time actually told. Um, lead actress Joyce Heiser that it was in fact their most requested title back when it was in heavy rotation on cable. So I think that explains why I watched this a lot because it was just kind of always on and we had uh, HBO and we were kind of the cool kids on the block for having that. But it, it, it definitely struck a, tor- a, a chord with I think a lot of people that were struggling with um, their gender identity, and certainly they weren't able to communicate a whole lot about it. But I mean, for me, I just found it very entertaining and kind of kind of connected a little bit with the nerdy love interest with the penchant for James Brown. I think a lot of that was had to do with like listening to a lot of oldies at the time. You know, I certainly wasn't obsessed to the point of having posters of him all over my wall, but I, I, I kind of really liked that character um, probably more when he probably more uh, than when he had this makeover. Honestly, I th- thought he had a better look. But e- even at a young age, I was kind of just drawn more to the tomboy <laughs> rather than the cheerleaders, and I can't help but wonder if this film is a little responsible for that because I just uh, you know just sort of found the, the character of Terry very endearing I really like the friendship between Greg and Terry a lot I think it's you know very charming Buddy is uh, sometimes hilarious <laughs> mostly problematic with some of the things he says especially late in the film when he gets a, a phone call but but we can talk about that more later I just I I really like these characters and I think just about everyone gives a, a, a good performance even if, when they're like playing an over-the-top villain or something like that and maybe the plot isn't anything that hasn't been done before but for the most part this really does have a special place in my heart and you know I 
I have a friend, you know, similar to Rain, who saw this when she, she was beginning to form her queer and feminist identity and said this movie really meant a lot to her. And I think it still holds up and does mean a lot to a lot of people. Also, to correct myself earlier, I meant the, the, the friendship between Rick and Terry, not Greg. <laughs> Greg right. is the villain. <laughs> right. Like you, I think I saw this on HBO and yeah, quite a few times. It's one of those when I go back and rewatch it now, I just feel like I know every single beat to it. It just feels like it became part of my DNA at some point. Definitely not the movie that is represented by the poster or video box cover with uh, Terry being super happy with the football helmets covering her boobs in the locker room. That notwithstanding, it's a damn solid uh, piece of filmmaking, and I, I really enjoy going back and rewatching it. And yeah, it is interesting that this film is a double makeover film, that it's not just Terry getting her makeover, even though she doesn't really get like the makeover scene, which is interesting. Like she goes from girl to boy like that, like so fast in this. And then the real makeover is the other character is the, the James Brown lover. And it's just like, Oh, okay. This is kind of neat how this goes, but yeah, some uh, interesting choices in here. Watching through this time, it really highlighted how much, this film is a critique of the construction of masculinity and the, the variety of masculinities which are being put on display here. And it made me think about all those other, like, you know, other gender swap comedies of, of the time, which are also actually about the construction of masculinity and not so much the construction of femininity at all. I just think that's such a fascinating thing. Having a female director at the helm with Lisa Gottlieb here really helps because like, I really do think that this could have been one of those teen sex comedies of that era. Uh, you know, and, and yeah, certainly that cover box art makes it look like it could, like the title could be something like All the Right Moves or whatever. But I'm so glad that it doesn't really sink into these overly sexist waters. I mean, yes, we have Buddy, but at the same time, like, I don't know if he's he's gross or creepy. <laughs> it's kind of just like, yes, he's sexist and too focused on sex, but kind of in this cartoonish way where it makes him like a little more desperate and pathetic. I don't think that character would exist so broadly today as it kind of did back then. But I still laugh at the guy. <laughs> I think he's kind of funny at times. They're lampooning that con that 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 ideal and you know he and he's a virgin this entire time so he literally has no idea what he's talking about he's just got all these things that he's absorbed from where you know wherever from media from his play his vast playboy collection you know where did where did that come from where are the parents why would you allow your teenage son to have all those naked centerfolds up in his room come on i mean most of the time you are ashamed of your playboys your penthouses your whatnot you keep those things you know under the mattress rather than just pinning up the pinups it's like what how are you doing that well maybe he waited to do that till his parents left and yes. went on vacation <laughs> i yes. think yes 
That would make sense. Yes, at least. of course. Yeah, he is. It, it is ironic that he is the hyper masculine, the sex crazed maniac, and that he, yeah, is the virgin character. Uh, there are other a lot of a lot of other people having sex. It seems very apparent to me that Terry and her boyfriend are having sex, and because she's just like, hey, you know, you'll eventually it'll happen to you, and it's like basically like it's not a big deal to her. Okay, this is kind of nice that it's not a big deal and that really it could be played up a lot more when it comes to like how much she's in love with her dud of a boyfriend kevin but i'm glad that she realizes pretty quickly that he is not mr right it's a puzzle why she's with him in the first place one of the many unexplained puzzles of this film (laughs) denise her best friend gives a little she says like oh well you've got the perfect college boyfriend and it's like all of these trappings for her why she is in such a great situation at the beginning of the film only to realize that it's really not that great of a situation and that he immediately turns on her when she wants to be taken seriously as a journalist and is like well you know you fall back on modeling i know that's a teacher but like you know the the boyfriend's very like oh modeling's very lucrative you know it's like he's all about the money and his story about wanting to be a fireman and then once he found out how much fireman made he immediately stopped wanting to be a fireman i mean that is one of the most telling things i mean he this is 1985 ladies and gentlemen he is the yuppie character in here he's he's creepy and wrong and he's I mean, he's a college guy dating a high school girl that's what i love about these high school girls man i get older they stay the same age <laughs> So I think Terry's 18, but it's still, it's still, but I, yeah. And later in the film, he kind of like just dismisses her new haircut, or at least he hates it because he's like, it's just gone. Like, I think she looks adorable. What are you talking about? You know, there are those guys, man, that just fucking flip out about girls hair where it's like. You need to get your man's permission before you cut your hair, apparently. And, you know, there are some women where it's like, this is my crowning glory and I can't touch it. And, oh, my boyfriend would be so mad if I got a haircut. It's like, who are you people? This is so foreign to me. Everybody got so mad when uh, Carrie Russell as Felicity cut off her hair on that show. That was ridiculous. I was like, what? Again, let her do what she wants. And it was actually fitting for her character and what she was going through at the time to go through some kind of change. Late in the film, I really warm up to Rick uh, even more so in the fact that he kind of just, well, I mean, yes, he has, you know, an overreaction to the big reveal, uh, which we can talk about. But, you know, he also takes the, the, the possibility of Terry being gay kind of in stride. Like, he doesn't react with extreme homophobia or anything, which around this time, I think, would have been, you know, when we talk about something like Revenge of the Nerds or just, you know, pe- people reacting really poorly in, in films around that time to that uh, scene. And yes, kind of like everybody at prom re- reacts like in shock. But at the same time, I do think that Rick is cool with it. And I found him to be like more sensitive and, and, and more progressive and more ahead of his time than to be that character in a film like this. That's one of the things that really resonated with me is that especially as we get to the very end scene where they're meeting and so Terry is who she is and Rick is who he is. And he says, you know, you look really great in a dress. And he's like, 
you know, kind of seeing her as she wants to be presenting herself really for me as a trans woman in that moment, I'm like, that is what I want. Like, I don't necessarily need to wear that outfit. I wouldn't dare, especially now, but to just be seen and be accepted. I mean, like that is, that was the ideal, you know, that's what I, that's what I yearned for. And I think one of the things that just like stuck with me and was like, this is a movie that I'm just going to try to keep close to myself and watch when I need a little like comfort blanket. It's certainly that the more I watch it too, it's like, it does feel like comfort and I, 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 spending time with these characters. And I also like that didn't have a whole lot of context or, you know, sort of these actors were all fresh faces for me at the time. I mean, obviously we saw, uh, you know, William Zabka, uh, play the exact same character, uh, essentially in the Karate Kid, but, um, you know, Joyce Heiser and, uh, Clayton Roner, uh, Billy Jacoby, now known as, uh, Billy Jane. Um, and, and certainly Sherilyn Finn. How could you not love her? She's adorable. <laughs> Even though she's kind of a sex pest. Yeah, kind of, but not, not in a creepy way again. That's the thing I, I wonder if Lisa Gottlieb's touch to, to a lot of these characters made them not fall into caricature, you know? It actually gives them a lot of dimension throughout. One thing that I find pretty interesting is that, you know, the whole movie begins with this idea of her writing this article and thinking that it's good enough to win this, you know, internship for the Sun Tribune. And when Kenneth Teagar describes the article, he's like, you're writing about the nutritional content of your lunch. <laughs> and it's like, okay. And like, it, there's that moment right before that when the other teacher comes in with him and is talking about how sexy some of the girls are in school and you just mm-hmm. get the heebie jeebies. And he's not, luckily he's not like really taking part of that. And he's just like, Hey, you better, you know, watch yourself with this stuff. So it doesn't really feel like he's discriminating against Terry, but she takes it that way, though he does give that line about like, oh, you should have a career to fall back on. How about modeling? And it's like, dude, that was the wrong thing to say. But it's fascinating to me that her writing is really fucking boring. And I love when she goes to the other school that the other teacher isn't like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. He's just like, you know, as a guy, you can write with more sensitivity. And it's like, Basically teaching her to be a better woman almost by making her embrace her femininity that wasn't coming through in the writing. It's kind of a a strange way that we're getting to that. How is this character who is clearly upper middle class Midwestern, who has a certain competency in these realms, how is she not going to college? How are her parents not? I mean, this is the mid 80s. This is not. This is almost requisite, you know, um, and not only how is she not going to college at this point, but like, why isn't this in discussion? She should know where she's going to college by this point because it's the spring. So it really just like leaves open this question, like what what has led to this circumstance in her life that she's decided not to do this? And she's putting all of this into one internship and that's the thing that's going to turn it around for her i would proceed with caution (laughs) going into that kind of a situation she's certainly ambitious but i think 
I don't want to read a story about the cafeteria, the nutrition co- content of the school lunches. I want to read something personal. And I think maybe that's what the teachers were getting at is that she needs to write something, uh, you know, that comes from the heart that definitely comes from personal experience. And clearly that ends up happening in, in a great way with even the title of her article end up being I was a teenage boy, which was the original title for this film. Because I've seen other movies with school reporters where it's like, I have to get the big scoop. Rather than talking about the nutritional content of your high school cafeteria, it's more like, do you know what they're putting in the mystery meat? You know, something much more hard hitting than that. So her just talking about the nutritional content of your lunches, it's like, wow, you know, did you really think that that was going to do it? I mean, it's kind of a weird soft news piece that she thinks is really going to light the world on fire. But yeah, I appreciate that she then does go into that first person gonzo journalism type style where it's like, okay, this is what I really need to write about. And when she's writing her article at the end and crying, it's like, it just tears my heart out every single time. But it's only two weeks. I mean, that's a part that really puzzles me too. It's like, this is a period of two weeks I mean, I, I was reminded of this uh, book that came out uh, a few years ago, um, which was like a, a, a female reporter disguised herself as a man for a year and like wrote a big, you know, write a, wrote a book about it. Um, Nora, Nora Vincent is the author's name from 2006, Self-Made Man, One Woman's Year Disguised as a Man. And like, even when that book came out, I'm like, you know, there are actually trans people in the world. You know, who can actually talk about this stuff uh, with much more raised stakes, I guess is what I'm saying, as opposed to just like this, like, I I mean, you go back to Black Like Me, right? Which was what, like uh, early 60s, late 50s when that came out? And it just brings these questions, like, what really are you investigating by doing something like that? Have, like for such a limited amount of time and 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 uh you know if you basically if you keep going terry <laughs> you might learn even more it's kind of what you know what what i was thinking as i was watching through this time yeah and i also thought of um cameron crow because he went undercover as a high school student and came out with an entire book about his experience mm-hmm. like he, he for a year he was um dave cameron and was just like this sort of unassuming senior guy and like posing at a California high school. So it's almost like, yeah, an amalgam of that real life event that obviously was eventually turned into Fast Times at Ridgemont High, along with, you know, something like Twelfth Night or, or Tootsie. And I, it's very funny that, you know, bef- way before something like Scream, where they're being very self-referential, you have a shout out to Tootsie at one point and Yentl. And of course, the wonderful Sherilyn Fenn at one point saying, you know, he dresses like Elvis Costello, but he looks like the Karate Kid. Who's got an enemy who's literally the Karate Kid's enemy. You have to wonder if people go up to him and go, hey, you look familiar. Well, I do admit that Joyce Heisert in her male guise so looks like Ralph Macchio. There are so many times. And she's even kind of doing a little bit of a Macchio voice a lot of times that like, you know, swagger and stuff that she has. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
But I think that speaks to something that's really, I mean, you know, there's like this crisis in gender roles that's happening in the 80s at the same, you know, I think yeah. even in retrospect, there's this idea that, you know, every, every men look like women and women look, look like men. There's Grace Jones and Annie Lennox and Boy George and Prince and Michael Jackson and like all these like hair metal, you know, all these like things you can fall back on. And I think this comes up numerous times in this movie where there's this mythology that there's like such a great divide between the ways that, that gender and its presentation are constructed, especially the amount of time it takes to be, you know, properly feminine. And yet she's able to, in a matter of seconds, scrub her face and get into her boy drag so that she can meet Cheryl and Fenn very quickly. And it's, and it's believable, right? Well, and like I said, it's very telling that we don't have a scene where she's crying as they're cutting her hair off or something that it, it, it's so fast how she makes that transition. I mean, it's literally like knock on the door and here's the boy version of Terry outside. Yeah. He's, he has his hair covered up at that point. But when we see that, we never see the, the transformation. We never see that haircut. So I'm like, Oh, okay. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I think in real life, too, that uh, Joyce Heiser has a very low kind of masculine voice. <laughs> I think uh, she even mentioned that it was actually more challenging her for her to do the, uh, the, the sister feminine Terry in the film because she basically raised her voice and made it a higher pitched because like her actual normal speaking voice is more along the lines of, uh, you know, boy terry after the the transformation she did a fantastic job in this too i mean i I know she'd been in a couple of things before this mainly in like uh, smaller bit parts but uh at the time she was known for being bruce springsteen's uh partner and there's some bruce springsteen posters on her wall Speaking of the things on her wall, I'm really interested in the construction of masculinity based on, you know, cause so many, so many character details are delivered by wall posters in 80s films, you know, or like you're supposed to learn a lot about people from the wall posters. And I just started listening, you know, she's got Hemingway, she's got Elvis Costello, she's got Bruce Springsteen, she's got David Bowie, she's got Billy Idol. She doesn't really have women on her walls. You know, Buddy has a David Bowie poster in there too, though I noticed in his collage of, you know, otherwise porn babes. He's got a great big David Bowie poster in there as well. So there's like a Bowie influence that's happening in here. I love that she can remember his little speech about the centerfolds perfectly and re-delivers that whole thing. It's so interesting how she becomes Buddy at that point and that she even says, you know, oh, that's that's my little brother's room. This is my room over here. And then takes Cheryl and Fenn into Buddy's room. There always has to be that sequence, though, in, in these movies where you, she's suddenly confronted with, oh, no, I have to be the other person, right? And then I have to run downstairs and be this other yeah. person. That I'm in. It makes me think of <laughs> Superman 4. Because <laughs> at one point he has to do that and, and basically be Clark Kent and Superman to two different women while he's on a date. It's so ridiculous. I'm surprised that she didn't do like makeup on half of her face and then just like hang out at a doorway and like, oh, sure, Kevin, I'll be right there. You know, 
And then, oh no, uh, Sherilyn Fenn, uh, Sandy, I, 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 I'll be, uh, back in a minute. Or like, you know, pitch her voice down so she could do that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is such a, to me, I, I'm always reminded of, uh, French farces at that point. I'm surprised oh, there wasn't sure. the whole, like, door open, door close kind of thing, like, secret of my success, you know? So, Rain, I was just watching a video the other day that was talking about how uh, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This came about. And seeing any Lennox in whatever year that video came out, it was so shocking, this woman with this short hair and especially that, you know, incredibly bright color. But, you know, as I grew older and I was like, oh, yeah, women can have short hair, too. I mean, any Lennox is one of the most beautiful women ever and she looks so striking in that video and i just yeah she's gorgeous and it's like why was that such a big deal at the time you know you're talking about how uh jim how uh felicity cut her hair it's like oh my god you know it's like the world is ending because people aren't adhering to what we think they should look like they're afraid of change it's it's really true, but I mean, I, watching it today in, in a way I probably didn't process when I was younger. I do think it thoughtfully explores a lot of things Rain is talking about in terms of, you know, these societal gender constraints, particularly like how teenagers just have these false ideas of how mm-hmm. boys and girls are supposed to act uh, or dress or, or or socialize. And certainly, I came across that to some degree in high. I think we all go through those awkward periods in high school, but you know, also trying to fit in and sort of realizing, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not these wildly over the top, over you know, hyper sexualized jock boys who just can't stop hitting on cheerleaders. I'm just not going to be a part of that group anytime soon, and I don't necessarily want to be either, even if they're quote unquote the popular group. Uh, I, I just wound up, and you know, as a lot of people in my circles kind of ended up with all the theater nerds and movie nerds, <laughs> and, it, and it was comfortable at the time. But it, it you know, I, th- I think it tells us to some degree, you know, that how we look or what gender we subscribe to should not necessarily define who we are as a person. I think that's a a positive message that maybe on some sort of subconscious level this film works on for people, even if they're not even actively thinking about it at the time, because I don't think a lot of people were in the mid 80s the way that we think of, you know, uh, gender now. And I'm, I'm actually really appreciative of that fact that this movie exists. Jim, were you the kind of guy that would bring your reptiles to school with you and like you have your iguana in the shower with you? Some of these side characters are a little ridiculous. The alien buddies. I mean, I, you gotta love Ari Gross, I guess, but, uh, I don't know. That's a little silly for me. I understand that they, that, you know, these kind of crazy characters, uh, end up in these high school teen sex comedies of this era, but they kind of annoyed me a little bit more rather than I didn't necessarily find them endearing, but I'm not huge into reptiles anyway. Yeah. I didn't really see them as endearing, but I really, it really helped expand my thoughts on like how this is a very broad attack on like these ideals of what masculinity is. You know, on one hand, you know, the reptile keeper, he's probably an animal hoarder and probably needs to have an intervention, you know, clearly because he's got too many. But like at one point, isn't he like holding in like an armadillo or something? Like towards the end, I feel like it's some, something like that. He's like even gone farther afield into like another, another animal. I'm like, where, where are these animals coming from? And, 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 and how are you really taking care of them? But he's also just this very like soft and sensitive creature. 
himself, you know, and, you know, in a, in a complete counter to, I mean, well, even, even Rick really, you know, but definitely against Greg and Kevin, you know, he's, he's just presenting this like entirely different kind of masculinity. And then the other guys, you know, the Ari Gross character and I mean, they're, they're just cartoons, but so much of this movie is a cartoon. It just doesn't make sense when you like really hold it up, you know, how is she not wearing a bra when she does the reveal? of her breasts. That's a cartoon. And, you know, I've watched enough of Lisa Gottlieb's films now at this point to see, like, you know, sometimes making it a little cartoony makes it accessible and like, and, and that's fine. You know, it's not, I don't see that as really a critique of this or, you know, or it's like pointless to make that a critique, I think. But at the same time, like you're getting this like really broad panoply of like what kinds of masculinity are in there and the ones that are shamed are the Kevins and the Greggs. Ultimately, if that's not feminist filmmaking, what is so true? But sadly, I did have a gym teacher slash coach that was very much like the one in this. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I shouldn't laugh because he, well, he didn't have tro- trophies lying around and he wasn't polishing them at all times, but he was kind of hard on people who were just not physically fit. Uh, and yeah, I didn't like that experience at all. It made me just dread coming to gym class because I feared being made fun of by, you know, you know, a teacher, <laughs> essentially. Yes. So Yeah, me too. That was definitely my experience. And I did everything I could to get out of it. I forged a doctor's note. Sorry, I didn't mean to put that out there, but I did. <laughs> Yay! Team forged doctor note. I'm I'm all for it. I didn't forge the doctor note, but I found that I could change my clothes in record time just because I was so uncomfortable in, in a locker room. And then my faking of stuff, my faking of illnesses was sixth grade when I missed, I don't know, 38 some days of school because I hated my teacher so much. She was this former nun who just felt that proselytizing in a public classroom was okay. And man, oh man. Did I just feel so uncomfortable with that? As you're saying that, Mike, I'm really interested in the fact that, like, there isn't really a savior teacher here. They try a little bit at the end, you know, to kind of reconcile that that one relationship. You know, I mean, after so many iterations of that in in Hollywood films where, you know, there's the teacher that really likes and, you know, and I think I mean, I certainly had those teachers that were my allies to a certain extent, but. There's not a redeeming teacher really in this, which I think is such an interesting move. Yeah, even the teacher, the journalism teacher, like not the Kenneth Teagar teacher from the first high school, but the other one who tells her that it's okay to embrace her femininity when she writes about things, he never comes back, right? And that's the only time we see him. It's it's so fascinating because you would think with her being a writer and writing for this paper, but basically she just I mean, as far as the movie's concerned, she basically uses this guy to be like, hey, here's this thing. Oh, you rejected it? Okay, well, I guess I'll go write my other article then. And that's what she does. You're talking about the Ari Gross and other guy characters, these two outer space people. They reminded me a lot of John Cusack and I can't remember the other actor from 16 Candles. I swear that they were almost like from outer space as well with some of the weird interactions that they would do. 
Take those ridiculous things off. Do you have any film in your camera? Sure. Okay, you guys, go get it and bring it on outside, okay? Right up front. Before. Look, just get it and come on out front, okay? UFO? It's better. Extraterrestrial? It's better, all right? Just get it and come on outside. Was this a trope that I just was unaware of that you have these two nerds that go around together and they only communicate with one another in a really meaningful way? I'm assuming there were Trekkies back then. I mean, I yeah, I guess weird something like weird. I don't think weird science necessarily had the nerdy character. Well, I mean, the main the two main characters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess they are, but they didn't act like they're from outer space necessarily either. But it's just, I think there were these kind of goofy cartoon characters that would just pop up for comic relief and do weird things just to be weird. Uh, and I just, you know, it's like absurdism just thrown in there. But yeah, I think to your point, Rain, they also do show a different aspect of masculinity as well, that it doesn't have to be just the, the jock and the, you know, the, the nice guy who it's interesting that Rick is kind of a nerd as well. And that like, even when Terry first meets him, when she gets dumped, uh, by, um, by William Zabka, the Greg Tolan character, it feels like where he's sitting, it's like, did you just get thrown over here earlier? It feels like he's <laughs> sitting there with the garbage when she ends up landing right next to him. He could easily be another victim of bullying, you know, just because he is such an outsider. And he's got that past as far as like, oh, I've been to all of these high schools over this time. He never fits in because he's there so shortly. And yeah, he feels like an outsider too, especially with, you know, you mentioned the James Brown music and he likes this old music. He doesn't feel like he's part of this world. He feels like he's more comfortable, you know, at the Apollo in 1964. I'm sure you're aware too that the, that the James Brown subplot was supposed to be uh, a little bit greater in, uh, in detail, including the fact that James Brown himself visited the set to teach Clayton Rohner how to dance like him. And I'm like, oh, that's such a shame that got cut. I mean, I guess you have to make cuts like that when you're making a film, but still, it's, uh, why, why can't that be a deleted scene on the Blu-ray or something? I would have loved to have seen that. That's so cute and cool. That's the kind of like the thing about that character, too, is just that he's really charming and he seems really nice. And he, I was actually just really impressed with the fact that he was able to come up with that whole spiel to bring down Greg, the, you know, the, the, the cafeteria bully and be so confident in doing that. He's really great. I like that he doesn't lose his shit when he goes on that double date with Terry and Sandy because he couldn't, he gets stuck with this girl that's in sixth grade and <laughs> it's like he could really just go nuts either that scene or even the next day he could just be really angry at Terry. But once they become friends, it feels like that friendship is really genuine. And yeah, you're right, Rain. This is a period of two weeks. I don't know if this is just like, hey, things are more intense in high school or if we just need to shorten this timeline because mom and dad are out of town kind of thing. But yeah, it's really wild how quickly all of this happens. You just have to be along with the ride for some of this. But like, you know, what if this was a full year of school? You know, I mean, how do you just go to a new school for two weeks? That's one question. It was like, how easy it is just to like register at a new school and just go there now. 
Um, and wouldn't that tip you off if you're Cheryl and Fenn? You're like, wait, this isn't in my district. Why are you? Why do you live over here? You know, like. Well, she even says that. Yeah, she yeah, yeah, late in the film. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it could have been you know John Cryer sitting in the hallway waiting for his cousin, and then they're like, "Oh, you're the new guy." Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Oh, I lost my transcript. John Cryer is hiding out. You've left the outside world. You've got to orient your thinking. You've got to think repression and limits. Think humiliation and despair. You're in high school, for God's sake. I'm going to date a college guy because, you know, you've got to date older because the dudes are just so immature. You've got to go older, older, older. I mean, it's not like I had a ton of friends in high school, but I had enough that were like dating up, quote unquote, dating up, right? And you know, where does that goal even come from? I mean, this is part of it. Part of it is from culture, from movies and that kind of thing. And just this, like this notion that like women, you know, young women mature faster. And so we're, you know, we're supposed to like date beyond our, our, our you know, outside of our group because the guys, like the high school guys are just, bleh. especially when you're in that like junior, senior year kind of a space, which I hope that that has moved out of the cultural sphere, you know, and I hope that that, but I, I don't know. I'm not in high school. It makes me think of the, the cast of 90210 being way too old to play high schoolers. And I think even the case here is that oh, yes. they were in their mid twenties and they were playing high schoolers in this as well. Deborah Goodrich in particular um, is like 10 years older than a lot of the people in this 11 years older than Joyce Heiser. That was a cast. That was what casting was. And I just feel like there's so many things that are in this film that I, I know just had to be done because this is the way the studio wanted it to make it happen. They're very smart in having so many scenes take place in the men's room because it is such a private space. It makes her uncomfortable every single time that she's in there. And I especially like when she forgets that she has to go pee and leaves and then has to go back into it and kind of embarrasses herself that way. And I haven't gone back to watch a lot of those gender panic comedies from the time, but I don't think there was the same scene in, uh, you know, Ladybugs or He's My Girl or any of these other films, you know, where the male person impersonating a female person is having to negotiate that whole thing because like, what is it? You just go in the stall and then you're done, I guess, <laughs> you know, and there's no drama there. Well, there's always that weirdo character in a movie that will stick their head up over the stall next to you. Like they're having such an intense conversation. They have to continue it that way. Like this is my private space. Thank you. I felt bad for, for Terry when she she realizes there are no doors on the stalls. And I'm like, uh, that's so not cool. I'm guessing high schools had that, but I'm glad mine had stalls or had doors on the stalls. Good Lord. I was struck by how many penis size jokes there are in this as well. They're just constant. Fortunately, now that especially as trans awareness has come up and uh, especially for trans masculine people, like... It's it's become even more heightened. Like this is actually not that smart or cool, you know, to be just like joking about penis size. But it really, you know, it, it does speak to that anxiety. And you know, the big joke is the the biggest bully has the smallest wiener, and he can't 
he can't contest that apparently, you know, like it seems to be like just it's confirmed case. twice in this yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I think the joke ends up really being on him because he's the one who's most upset about this particular thing, but it still happens, which is just fascinating. I do like Sherilyn Fenn's reaction to the finding the socks <laughs> in, in, in Terry's pants at one point is just really kind of sweet about it. And, that, you know, doesn't doesn't shame Terry in any way and just kind of goes, oh, I'm flattered that you would do this for me. And I, I, I think that that's also kind of a little in, endearing uh, of her to be that way and not creepy about it or make make Terry feel, you know, ashamed in any way. I think one of my favorite characters in the film is Denise, who is Terry's best friend. She gives a little flack, like, oh, you're mental, like these kind of things, but never maliciously. It always feels like she's there to support Terry, and especially when Terry invites her to the prom. And she's like, hey, listen, this guy's making eyes at me. I really want to go for this. And Terry then is supportive of her. It's like, okay, yeah, if you got to do it, you got to do it. So great. Go for it. And it's like, wow, these two girls really are supportive of each other. And there's not that like, oh, you're nuts for doing this. And and there's no threat of her not being friends with Terry because Terry is now cross-dressing and going to this other school. It's like, yeah, no, she's there for you. And, and, and she puts up with Buddy, who is just such a pain in the ass. And I think he gets worse as the movie goes on, because at first he's kind of he reminds me a little bit of like Woody Allen with some of those lines as far as like, don't get me wrong. It's not like I've never had sex before. I've had lots of sex. It's just that now I'd like to try it with a partner. That feels very much like a Woody Allen line. And then as the movie goes on, though, he just gets worse and worse to the point where he's like basically sells out Terry to Kevin just so he can see the fireworks. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, no, he delivers a lot of lines that you could see coming out of Woody Allen uh, at the time. But it's at one point, he's like kind of emulating Tom Cruise and risky business with the little dance, the little jig he's doing to uh, slow dance. Mm -hmm. And there are times where I'm like, yeah, he's really kind of annoying. But there are other times like he's pretty funny. (laughs) So I'm willing to forgive that. Like horny will kick embarrassments ass anytime like he's got all he's got all these great lines that you can't help but you know enjoy his presence even though yeah he does do some despicable things like at one point when uh terry gets a phone call he calls terry an it and that really is unfortunate that's when you turn on him I was really afraid when he said, oh, it's Mr. Wonderful, that it would be a different guy than Kevin. I was afraid that it was going to be Rick on the phone. And then, you know, she would start talking more feminine. And then it's like, oh, shit, you, you know, you set me up, basically. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness that you didn't do that. And I'm also glad, too, that when Terry sells out Sandy and is like, hey, there's a half naked girl up in your bedroom. It's like. Okay, this could get really bad. It could get really rapey and just really awful. This could go into John Hughes territory here. You know, this could be the drunk girlfriend from 16 Candles who he basically gives to Farmer Ted. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake, that's horrible. And luckily it doesn't become that. Like they, 
have a conversation. She's uncomfortable at first. He does not pursue her, you know, doesn't like block the door or something like, Hey, you know, we should really, you know, if you really want a real man, here I am kind of thing. It's none of that kind of bullshit and that they end up together. I'm like, well, that's actually kind of sweet at the end. So Rain, I'm so curious as far as your real experience when it comes to like, we're talking about like I was talking about the bathroom scene and you know, that that is what really exacerbates that feeling for Terry as far as like, I'm an imposter. And I'm so curious as far as like, did when, or did you experience that feeling of fright that she would have at a moment like that? Were there ever times for you when you were kind of coming up as far as like, I shouldn't be here. or I just feel uncomfortable. All the time. I mean, I was very conscious of myself as a, as a trans person throughout the entire eighties. Like I was, I was aware of that, like the word. I knew that I was a trans, transsexual woman, but didn't know how to access any of it, obviously. So it was like having to go into these, you know, whatever, would have to go to school and uh, like, you know, not to get too like maudlin about it, but like, I, you know, I, I developed an eating disorder so that I didn't have anything digestive going on at school. So I didn't have to use the bathroom. Like I just avoided all these things. I got myself out of PE as soon as I possibly could so that I didn't have to engage any of that, uh, in any of that behavior. I didn't shower. I just refused. And, um, I got to be really good at refusal, you know, but I also wasn't doing a lot of like activity during PE either. So, you know, I was like, I didn't get that sweaty, but you know, I'm like, I'd rather smell than participate in this way. Basically, as soon as I could actually transition, I did. And so didn't have to engage those spaces. But, you know, I mean, there were constantly a space of terror for me, constantly. And, uh, you know, the sooner I could get out of them, the better. Do you mind if I ask, how did you even find out the term trans? And when did you first realize that that was a thing? Um, I found it in medical books. Um, my mother had a nice medical library and I found the term in, in a book and then that sent me to the actual library. So I was pretty conscious of it by, you know, so I was born in, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hard Gen Xer. <laughs> so I was, you know, I, I discovered the term probably 77, 78, somewhere in there, that time frame. And, uh, you know, finally first came out to somebody for the first time about 10 years later. So 87, 88, um, is when I finally, you know, began to come out and then publicly transitioned completely in, uh, 1992. Pretty quickly, <laughs> pretty quickly after, after I came out for the first time, came out to the world, you know, because it was just, it was something I was aware of, something that I knew that I needed just to survive in the world and just to like work through all of that, you know, just that, that Reagan era, gender paranoia, HIV paranoia, gay paranoia, like all these things. And it was a time when, even though this film like uses a lot of the terms, I mean, at one point, buddy, buddy just calls Terry a transsexual to their mother on the phone, you know, like this, the words were there, the, con the, the consciousness that this was a thing was out there, but it was still very distant and very freaky for a lot of people. Nobody knew any, except of course, there were, there were plenty, there were plenty then, just as there are now, you know, it's just now that we're not, you know, we're, we're less afraid to, you know, be out about it. I think my first experience with 
just the term transsexual is probably John Lithgow from um, World mm-hmm. According to Garp. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, again, learning everything through movies, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I read Garp. I read Garp because of that character. And that's when I discovered John Irving. So, <laughs> you know, I'm like, what? Well, how is this person writing about something that I'm supposed to have some kind of connection with? I mean, I mean, it, that, that, there were trans characters through so many different TV shows at that time. And I remember there were like some very like tear droopy episodes of like Trapper John and Saint Elsewhere, you know, where it was just like these like big scenes where somebody would come out and then the doctors would be like in crisis about it. Do I have the right to do this? You know, like all these kinds of like medical ethical things were coming up for a lot of those characters. And honestly, so much of that was like, just, you know, for me, like, I'm just like, I'm not seeing hope in any of this. The one show that was an exception was the Jeffersons for me. And I watched this obsessively because I kept wanting to see this episode where George's, George Jefferson's Navy buddy comes back and has transitioned and, you know, and then he's being George Jefferson about it, but ultimately comes around to acceptance of this character. And I'm like this right here, that's what I want. Like I want just to be me, you know, as I see myself and, and, you know, for it not to be an issue. And I don't want anybody to be like, squicked out or anxiety ridden about it or like i don't want anybody questioning their own gender just because i'm changing because it has you know but you know that's not always the way it works you know i mean we see it in this film you know we've got this character who makes a shift and then everybody has to kind of react and like reposition themselves to figure out like what does this mean about me i mean and that's one of the interesting things about the rick character is that his identity, even though he goes through this like makeover situation, he's never threatened by this. You know, it's okay. She's got tits and this whole like tits thing that he keeps throwing out. It's like, eh, it's ugly, but he's mad. He's, he's mad. He's mad because he feels betrayed at that point, but it doesn't feel like you were saying it doesn't, it's he, he doesn't react horribly. It's not like he, pulls a Steven Rhea and starts throwing up, you know, it's like, okay, you know, he is mad that his friend has been lying to him more than he's mad that his friend is a, of a different gender, you know, then yeah, I, I appreciate what you were saying before Jim, as far as when he's like, it's okay. You know, you're gay. It's all right. And like that immediate understanding and acceptance is like, okay. And I think he probably would have been he, i don't think he would have necessarily reciprocated but i think he would have been okay if like terry had been like yes i'm gay and i find you really attractive or and i'm in love with you i think he probably would have worked through it all right i don't see him reacting horribly to that either yeah we should talk about the big reveal because <laughs> that was huge and i know uh you know the actress joyce heiser had a lot of reservations about showing her chest and eventually Lisa Gottlieb sort of talked her into that more or less and just said, you know, let's give it a try. Let's try it both ways and see how it plays either way. And, you know, obviously Joyce uh, agreed. Uh, I just, I just wonder how, if how people feel about it, if it was necessary to actually see them or not, I feel uncomfortable with it to some degree, just knowing that 
she had a no nudity clause in her contract and her friend Rosanna Arquette at the time was like, no, please don't do this because then that's all people are going to focus on and talk about. And you, they won't see you for the amazing woman that you are, the amazing actor that you are and all that. I'm obviously accepting of the fact that it exists in this form and that it's there, but I, I do have issues, I guess, with the overall decision made to go ahead and uh, show uh, to have nudity when I don't think the actress was down for it necessarily. I definitely don't think it was necessary, but at the same time, you know, this is, this is 80s cinema. There's just like boob flashes all through it. And the question comes to mind, like what, what is being communicated here? Really? Like, you know, like, so I guess the idea, the trope is that a couple of nice firm breasts equate feminine ideal, you know, some kind of feminine ideal. But and the, but I think one one of the things that I think makes that scene so effective is it is so cartoonish as I said a, a little bit ago, which is that like she's not wearing, you know, she's not wearing any kind of compression, she's not wearing a bra at all, which doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for the character. It doesn't make sense for the illusion that she's trying to present. And, and how easy it is just to like rip that shirt open. Like, it's just like, it's really, really, you know, and I've, you know, I've done a, I've done a couple, you know, I'm a performance artist. I've done a few shows where I've done like, you know, whatever sex changes on stage, you know, and, and done things. And I've done a show where I've like had to rip open my shirt and then like, you know, something happens. One time I had balloons in there that were full of helium and they floated up to the sky, you know, these are show pieces. Right. They're, they're done to like create uh, a shock and an impact and, and, and to do, you know, to do something. I think we're just, you know, we as the viewers are left to come away with, with this idea that uh, this means something important that she's got breasts as opposed to any other, any other way that, that you might do this. I don't know how you would have communicated this effectively to the audience other ways. I guess the, an over the shoulder shot with, you know, we see her open her shirt. And I think that was maybe then the alternate cut or the alternate shot that they shot. And I don't know. I, Which would have worked, I think. But I also think the other version is effective in its own way. Sure. Yeah. Trying to think of like, how else would she show this? Like, it's really like the revelation of her genitals or her breasts. And it's like, otherwise, there's nothing there that could convince them you know it kind of reminds me of like when when michael dorsey reveals that who he is i mean that's it's a it's an easier reveal you know he raises his or he lowers his voice down and he pulls the wig off and it's like oh my god this is a dude and it's like but to go the other way it's like yeah, because it's very telling that this is the same type of reveal that they did in She's the Man as well. I think that Amanda Byers or whatever her name is lifts up her shirt. And it's like, okay, this is the same damn reveal that we've got here. Is this the only way that we can convince a dumb guy that your friend is actually a, a, a woman? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and yet, and yet, you know, you go to like the famous, you know, the famous or infamous scene from uh, the Crying Game, in which you know you have full frontal nudity, and you know if you don't look at the lower half of the screen, you're like, well, what's the what's the deal here? I don't understand, you know, because you've, you know, got kind of a feminized body, but you know, and then you realize like, oh well, there's there's actually, you know, whatever a penis there. So, 
penises and breasts are not the same organ, right? Or they're not like they, they're not there. There's no there's no parody there. Like, what what are we communicating when we're showing these things as like the 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 markers of realness in terms of what is a woman or what is a man? Yeah, I, I do think about that a lot. I mean, heck, to get even, you know, personal in, in my own way, I was, I was pretty much overweight from junior high onward. And let's say I was made fun of for being a little bit larger in the chestal region. <laughs> and it obviously created some insecurity. I wasn't a fan of like we talked about being in the locker room. And, you know, if it was shirts and skins and I happen to be skins, oh no, I'm not doing that, you know? And, Yet, at the same time, I made friends. I still managed to connect with a lot of great people and had relationships, even if they were the kind of weird ones we all have in high school. Um, so it's, it's like, why was that, you know, so focused on by a lot of, you know, especially the, the jocks is like, oh, dude, you have tits. Like, I, they would actually say that to me in the, the same way that, like, uh, yeah, Greg kind of, or um, Rick reacts to uh, to Terry at that one point, just focuses on that. And obviously, I understand why, but still, I I struggle with it, but I'm accepting of it at the same time. I mean, I think that that if we were to make this movie today, many things would be different. But I think that that would be, you know, that that would just have to be different. And I think I think even just like the because I mean, even if we shoot shoot this over the shoulder and and you know we're just watching Rick's reaction, well. It's still the same thing. We're just looking at it from like a different angle, you know, and there's some other, you know, there's, there's many other ways that that, that could be, that could be achieved, that could be done. And we're not in 1985 anymore. 1985 was all about boobs. One thing that would have to change for sure is, uh, underage drinking in this movie the, oh, yeah. like, brewskis everywhere Rick's, oh brewskis and like, she she can't accept somebody that uses the word bitchin but she uses brewski like nobody's business <laughs> <laughs> and I love that it's like that uh, public Im- image limited style beer where it just says beer on it and it's a blue label or blue lettering on the white label but the parents are away though oh know? yeah 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 so. his parents are well her parents are away and then I feel like there is a lot of stuff missing from this movie because there's a point where she comes over and uh, Rick's mom is there and she's like oh hey Mrs. So-and-so and it's like you don't know who this person is. We've never seen that introduction before. All right. Feels like there's a lot of little connector scenes that are kind of missing from this. And by the way, that was Amanda Bynes, not Byers. I don't know where I got Byers from. <laughs> so. All right. We are going to take a break and play an interview with the director of Just One of the Guys, Lisa Gottlieb, right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Let me ask you a question. 
Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Deadlock, the action-packed thriller starring Bruce Willis and Patrick Muldoon, is now available on digital and on demand. When a wanted criminal leads a team of mercenaries threatening to flood an entire town, it's up to one retired elite army ranger to save thousands of lives before it's too late. Buy or rent Deadlock and watch it today. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. I've got an interview with Lisa Gottlieb, the director of Just One of the Guys. And of course, I asked her how she got her start in the industry. I was a still photographer. I was very active growing up in New York, and I worked with a citywide high school underground newspaper. There were a bunch of people on the newspaper who were really interested in following this group that called themselves the White Panthers. They were in Ann Arbor, Michigan, led by John Sinclair, who went to jail for 10 years for being in possession of two joints. And the band MC5, they were their official band and all this stuff. And they just kind of liked these guys. And Cream Magazine were in Detroit while these other guys were in Ann Arbor. And there were a lot of links there. I was in New York and I was shooting a lot of photos originally of demonstrations and stuff like that. And just the streets of New York and portraiture and some like actors headshots and promo shots for musicians and bands so I kind of knew everybody I was really young you know I was still in high school and I worked for the citywide high school newspaper with a bunch of guys and that was the link to cream magazine because they 
started hiring me to take some photos or one of their reporters would be covering a band. And so suddenly I was going and I love music and I would, I had a press pass to the film where East every week and I could take pictures of all the bands and some of it for cream and for other magazines. So it was really fun. It was great. And I was a kid, but, and my parents said, if you get good grades, we'll leave you alone. You can do whatever you want. I don't think they imagined <laughs> what I was getting into. <laughs> I think they were a little shocked. And I kept saying, Hey, you said you wanted the grades. So there you go. I've got them and I'm running away with the rock and roll circus. I just had a great time uh, during that period. And I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor so that I would be there. That was part of the reason. I also had all these cousins in Detroit that were uh, I was friendly with. What years were these? 73, 4, Five in there. I think I then went to Chicago and went to a theater program at Northwestern, but then made some films at Columbia College Chicago, which was it's a really nice film school. I actually went back and worked there for a few years. And I made a film that basically won all the film festivals and the Student Academy Award and was screened all over the world. It was great. It really got my career going. So that was my first film. It's called Murder in a Mist. Someone told me it's actually on YouTube with the credits chopped off. So you should probably get uh, upload a copy of it on YouTube intact so people can just watch it. Do you have a link to Michigan? I don't know why I thought you or your podcast had a relationship with Detroit? Yeah, I live in Westland. I'm about midway between uh, Ann Arbor and Detroit. I work in downtown Detroit, and I went to school in Ann Arbor. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a fellow Wolverine. There you go. It's odd. I mean, I had a great opportunity there. They had a program. They wanted to get more women fast-tracked into medical school, and I, like I said, I had good grades, and I thought, Oh, yeah, I'll do that. But it was really my parents' dream, and I wanted to make movies by then. I really did. So, And the Ann Arbor Film Festival every year. I wanted to make a movie that would be in the Ann Arbor Film Festival, and then I ended up doing that uh, with Murder in the Mist. And it kind of won everything, and then it got me my first screenwriting jobs, and it's Really, it really got me just one of the guys. I have to say, they hired me to do a bunch of rewrites and be the director based on loving that film. So I'm very grateful for that. Now, was it you or was it another Lisa Gottlieb who was a a casting assistant on a few films? Uh, That was me. And that was Blues Brothers. That was Blues Brothers and Continental Divide. Everyone in Chicago, everyone in Chicago got a a job. Anyone who was in a film school got a job on Blues Brothers. It was such a gigantic shoot. And every actor I knew that was doing theater in Chicago, which always had a big theater scene, 
was going to be have a little day player or at the very least going to play cops that's chasing them that they keep cutting to. And I just hired everybody. I hired everybody in Chicago to be on it. But first I started out, they just hired everybody to guard street corners. You know, you're PA and you're making sure nobody walks into the shop as they did these drive-bys. I was really over that. I, I did that one day and I thought, well, it's kind of boring. You know, I'm just standing on a corner all day. Yeah, I'd love to be up at camera. You know, I'd do anything to be up at camera. So somebody recommended me to the casting office. So they wanted somebody to manage the extras. And I did that. And then they noticed that I wasn't a very good typist. And they said, look, we hate the set, uh, but we're good typists. Do you want to do the stuff at the set? And you want to be a camera? So I said, yes, I would do that. So I'd go in the morning on the crew bus down to set and sign in all the extras and wrangle them for a while until the ADs were putting, setting them in a shot. And then I would talk to the ADs and talk to the director, John Landis, and see what they wanted, if they had anything particular in mind for the extras. You know, they thought a lot about the background visuals. They thought a lot about who the people on the streets of Chicago were. And if you look at the musical scenes, if they cut outside, the street is filled with people dancing. The Ray Charles scene and you know a bunch of them and so uh, those were all people that I hired and I'm also there and a lot of the PAs we're all there dancing so it was really fun it was great so yes when that casting director was going back to Chicago to do the location casting on Continental Divide I was in Los Angeles by then i moved there to write and direct and she asked me and there was a writer's guild strike oh and a and a screen actors guild strike going on so you know the world was at a standstill i moved there it was nice to have a place there and meet everybody but you know nobody could work and i was there first and foremost as a writer so i went back to Chicago to be the assistant location casting director to Joe Doster, to my friend, and uh, again, uh, fill the backgrounds and do the uh, people who just walked in and had one line, get all those people and uh, get those uh, local Chicago theater actors a little extra spending money. So I did that. That was fun. It was the same crew, largely, as Blues Brothers, and the same lead actor, because it was John Belushi. So a lot of us just knew each other. It was really fun to do Continental Divide. Then I went back to L.A., and the strikes ended, and then I, I got a bunch of screenplays to write. And a couple of years later, I got offered uh, to rewrite and direct just one of the guys and I'd been writing a bunch of stuff. Yeah, I did about three or four rewrites. We got green we were green lit. The original script was 
written by Dennis Feldman, and it was called Ladies' Man. The one that we greenlit, I called uh, I Was a Teenage Boy, which was going to be the name of her article. Then we started casting. Then Jeff Franklin came in to write a bunch of jokes and immortalize the ball-scratching scene. I will be forever grateful. And then we were off and running. We shot it and cut it and delivered it in record time. The studio had had a bunch of flops, and they were really eager for something to get out there and make money. And they thought it was going to be this John Travolta, Jamie Lee Curtis film called Perfect. But it was us. It just came out of nowhere. They were so shocked. They kept saying to me, everybody loves this movie. It's so weird. And I would say, no, it's good. It's good. You had the instinct to green light the film. Anyway, we had enough people there who were fans that we had a really great opening, very wide opening. We were we opened in over 1,500 theaters, and we held up theaters. We opened, I thought it was the first Friday in May, but when we released the Blu-ray this past spring, they told me it was... April 25th, I think they said 1985. We started shooting. We were scouting locations. And so we were already scheduled in August of 1984. It was really fast. But I was really kind of an indie director. I liked working fast. I had plenty of time. I convinced them to bring in the actors a week early so I could rehearse them. It was made all the difference. I had a bunch of actors who were really wonderful and talented and funny as hell, but not that experienced. And I needed them to play each other's best friends, each other's siblings. You know, I just really wanted to get them going. And I, I, kind of registered them at a local high school and we went to school and this was already in the fall I guess it was September we were going to be starting very soon shooting and this was our rehearsal week and we went to Tempe High School so they went to some classes and then we were going to meet up at lunch it was an outdoor lunch room you know they got a kick out of it and I was a little worried, and so were they, that some of them didn't actually look like they were still in high school, age-wise. And i got to tell you, these kids at Tempe High, uh, they looked older than all of us. They were really, we had no problem. We knew we could pull it off. I just basically said it's performance. You know, it's about how you act. It's about how you react. It's about you being in that moment and deciding that's how old you are. That must have been a little scary for you to be directing this pretty big feature film and you hadn't had that experience. I mean, I know that you'd done your short, but you hadn't necessarily done like, I'm a director of a complete feature film now. Yeah, studio film. I was terrified, but I was so enthusiastic. I just saw it. I saw how the film 
could be made. I saw it. I knew I could do it. And I kind of fell in love with it. But I was in terror of the advice I got when I asked people, well, you know, how do I handle this? What's up with this? (laughs) What am I going to find? You know, there'd been five or six female directors of features and there were these four women called the four Jones. Don't even ask me. It was before my time there, but it was shortly before my time there. You know, I was basically directing a a kind of a hip teen comedy, partially because Amy Heckerling did this was a thing and this was a little genre that it was decided that women could do. That's why I I was there making it. It was pretty terrifying, particularly since right in the middle of making the film. Well, before we started the film, Coca-Cola had bought Columbia Pictures. I think that's how it went because we had tons of Coca-Cola on the set. And luckily... I find the Coca-Cola logo to be really graphically interesting. I like the red. I like the script. I loved it. And so having a bunch of cans of Coca-Cola, having the characters sipping Coca-Cola. Now, I would prefer it. I don't drink much soda pop, but uh, I prefer a regular Coke out of one of those little bottles, old-fashioned looking bottles over ice. But Meanwhile, suffice it to say, they bought the company, and at first it didn't seem to make any impact. But during post-production, it's almost like Columbia Pictures, a lot of the people I'd been working with were gone. People I got used to seeing were gone. So I knew there were changes all around, and I knew I was in, you know, this these corporate tra- transitions People, a bunch of people leave and then a new bunch of people come in. You never know if your project is going to be sacrificed on the altar of corporate politics or if you're going to get a decent release. It was unnerving, but I tried to balance that out with just loving the work I was doing the people I was working with, I was so lucky. I had a script supervisor, the late, great Marshall Schlamm, who was Alfred Hitchcock's script supervisor and had amazing stories to tell. And I'm a big fan, so hearing how uh, Marshall and the second unit director needed to shoot this scene based on these very careful storyboards that Alfred Hitchcock had given them. And this was of Martin Balsam coming down the stairs in the psycho house and uh, being (laughs) stabbed to death. And it's amazing. I mean, I just, I learned so much from him and he was so wonderful to work with. And in post-production, the other late great person, and this was my first feature, I had a lot to learn about everything. I mean, I was good at picturing how I wanted the images to be and how I wanted the actors' performances 
to be. And, you know, I love this naturalistic world that's also very beautifully art-directed and stylistically shot. So I was having a great time, but also there was a lot of stuff to deal with that was anxiety-provoking. It's never easy to direct a feature film. And Hollywood comes with, when you're working with the system around it, it always comes with a lot of levels of politics. You have to be able to manage. It's nice to think you could just make the film, but to make the film, you got to jump through a lot of and dig, get past a lot of obstacles. I think 85 was the first year where PG-13 was fully in effect, because I think that came around after Temple of Doom and Gremlins in 84. What was that like working with that rating, and did you have any problems, especially with, say, the topless scene? Actually, it was very new to us when we were editing. The movie is shot through with the idea of sex. When I talk to anybody about the attitude of it, the tone of it. I said, none of the main characters in this film, with the exception of the younger brother, Buddy, is a virgin. They're just not. They don't have to talk about it. It's not an issue. With that generation at that moment in high school, those kids were busy and they were doing it. And that I didn't want to focus on the movie being a virginity film, I wanted to milk every bit of comedy out of Buddy's desperation, particularly at once I found Billy Jacoby, a.k.a. Billy Jane, and we immediately knew how to write for his voice. It just really got us going. So I loved milking that, but I knew there would be sex in it, and I wrote that reveal scene and it was discussed a great deal, you know, with the producers when I handed in my drafts and when we got going with it. And even when I described the film to the studio execs, it was that breasts will be working in this film. The girls will appear. In just one of the guys, which was at that point called I Was a Teenage Boy. And everyone got it. Now, in the contract that we put together for the actors, you know, they said, well, you know, we're going to do something like this favored nations thing. You know, they give everybody a good salary, but it's a little lower because it's not a high, high budget. And uh, every, everybody earns the same in their, you know, all after the title. And they came to see some of the auditions and the producers and they thought, well, this, this is really great. This really works. And they thought this could be a film, you know, just on a higher level. And I said, well, yes and no. I don't want to give up the edge. You know, as it is, I'm feeling like our characters, the way they're written, written are fairly guileless. They're not inner city kids. You know, it's really suburban and overwhelmingly white. And the social 
aspects of, of it, the social issues side of it, is to confront gender, but also, you know, how status in high school is just a losing game. It's it's just not a way to live. And so we didn't start talking about PG-13 until we were in post. The producers suggested that we have a no-nudity clause just to show everyone how classy we are. And I suggested we not do that. They did it. But what that meant was that I had to convince Joyce that it's dramatically necessary for the moment to play. And you know what? I let her decide. And I had covered it from the over the shoulder. I could cut it out if she hated it. But she let me shoot it because she trusted me and because the case I made, which was that, uh, you know, Clayton's character, Rick, Rick thought he was very cool guy and loves James Brown, has a single mom, and uh, if Terry is gay, he can have a gay best friend. This is what he thought. And I said, I think you have to convince him because he's refusing to recognize what's obvious before him. I still got the girls in. They were necessary. <laughs> it was important. I know Joyce did not feel a bit exploited by that and looks back at it and thinks it was absolutely the right thing. So when PG-13 came around, they went in and they fought for it. They actually loved it. The studio liked the film. Well, some of them liked it. Some of them weren't sure if they were supposed to like it. They were waiting to see who was going to be in charge, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Our executive, who was our guide, who was our, who brought the project and brought me into it and just was our bigger support. You know, he was gone and we were, we longed for him. We, we yearned for him. But, uh, so we were, like I said, it's, it was unsteady, but they opened it big. They supported it as far as that went. Then, you know, so many owners later, Sony owns it. And after years of begging them to do the Blu-ray and, you know, get a narration track from us and maybe do a sequel because we'd love to do a sequel. After years of begging, you know, we got the Blu-ray and the narration track. And I was really happy with that, even though. I don't have my own copy of it yet. What would a sequel to just one of the guys look like? Either 25 or a 35, let me say this, a 35-year reunion, a high school reunion, or all the, the whole cast to come back together. Uh, that's one idea that we were kicking around. But the other idea which I know Joyce and I kind of like, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but is that Terry and Rick were married. They had a couple of kids. They broke up. Rick's kind of a deadbeat dad, but he agrees to take his kids to a father, son, 
anyway, it would involve their kids and having to get into drag or their daughter having to get into drag again at a father son weekend somewhere and Terry having to show up and everybody having to get into drag. I just don't exactly remember the details, but it would basically involve the next generation of people uh, cross-dressing to explore social issues and find their true loves and their true selves. I can think of so many movies with drag queens in them, but so few movies with drag kings in them, so few times that women are cross-dressing as men. This is true, and actually, I saw one that was kind of a TV movie about a woman that went undercover, but it was serious as a heart attack. They played it for ultra-drama. It's rare. There was another high school movie that I would often get emails from people saying, oh, look, these people are ripping you off. (laughs) But there was a couple of them that I think were doing Twelfth Night uh, knockoffs, updates of Twelfth Night, which does involve a female pretending to be male. Yeah, well, men like to dress up as women a lot. And I don't know if as many women do, although what shocked me the most, because I knew we were making this very heterosexual film. But uh, when I first got to Los Angeles and met everybody, I really did find, well, after the movie, let's say after the movie came out, but even after my my short film, which was a gender-bending film, I did find that gay women really responded wildly to the comedy, really got it on all these deep levels. And I really appreciated that. Probably about 10 years ago, when I was living in Miami and teaching at the University of Miami, and I did this uh, Jezebel.com three weeks of live chats with fans and live interviews online and then and plus interspersed with big articles that Erin Carmone did when I was and I'd never done anything like that I basically sat down on my couch followed her instructions and then didn't get up for seven hours you know it was just amazing and it was trans women you know it was women saying this movie kind of gave them permission to explore that side of themselves, which they kind of, it was revealed to them. You know, they kind of felt like they always knew something and here they did. And I, I was surprised, but really gratified. So you never know what people, what audiences will experience. It's, such an individual, such a subjective experience between each member of the audience and the movie they're watching. You can never predict it. People would tell me, I, one day I went in and the publicists gave me the book of, uh, it was probably a year after, of all the reviews from all the cities it opened in, all the reviews. And 
I thought, I'm okay. And I asked them, am I being a masochist? And they said, well, you got a lot of really glowing reviews, but you've got a lot. There's people there that, I mean, they don't, you can't believe what they say. You know, they just don't know. They don't understand the film. And I said, okay. So a lot of people also hated it. So I did. I read them because I just was really interested in how the film played in different parts of the country. I wanted to see. And it was fascinating what people interpreted, what they saw in it, how the movie washed over them. It was just so interesting. But at the end of the day, I'm very proud of it. I had $5 million, $4.5 million, actually, I think. And at the end of the day, with all the um, ancillary markets, you know, all the international money, when all of that accounting was done, I think the movie made around close to $90 million. Now, for a four and a half to $5 million film, even if you spent 10 to $15 million distributing and advertising it, I still think you're way ahead of the game. You talked a little bit about the coverage that you had to shoot for the topless scene. I'm curious, were there scenes that you shot that ended up on the cutting room floor? Well, I did write myself a short scene that where I'd be in the background teaching a <clears throat> class on the origins of tongue kissing. You know, the camera's just going by, it's setting the scene in the school, and this was the first thing I cut out of the film. I just want and <laughs> talk about self-sacrifice, I just said. It's so tagged on. It's, hello, this is my Hitchcock moment. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. No, it's not happening. I will not intrude. So we had a very long cut, and we basically really wanted to pace up the comedy, you know, leave a little time for people to laugh, but pace up, pace up. I was fairly happy with the cut. There's a scene that I really loved that the studio didn't. And in in it, Rick and Terry dance to a James Brown scene and then kind of fall on the floor and roll around and they touch. They're kind of touching and then they're really jumping apart and uncomfortable. And they loved the moment. The studio didn't like it, and the producers weren't sure how it would play. You know, it made them nervous. It was 1985. It it was still early to do anything that felt gay at all on screen. I liked it. I wished it was there. But we certainly still got a cut that I think is really good. I always feel when we pass that moment that it's a shorter version of what we originally had in that. I could have cut it and made it work, but I, some fights you want to have, some fights you want to let them win. And, you know, my editor, I thought, did a great job with it. Lou Lombardo, who was great. He did all the President's Men. He did one of my favorite films, Moonstruck. He cut amazing movies during his entire career. And again, in in post, I learned 
so much from Lou Lombardo. So much. So I know the movie, you were talking about that the studio needed a hit, and it was a hit. So did they immediately offer you something else to do after that? No, they didn't. They, I think, were just trying to find themselves. They were doing bigger budget stuff, I believe, and they were regrouping. Uh, They had signed a directing contract with me as director which contained two more options, two more pictures laid out, and that I would uh, give them a first look at anything I was writing or developing. So I saw them regularly because I was out there pitching. I had projects. I had ideas. It was still the age of development. They pay you a whole bunch of money, you know, with commas and zeros in it to go home and make a script happen. Not too many commas and zeros, I'm saying, but you could work your way up. You could raise your price. You could be a working writer in town more easily back then. And it was, uh, I was around and I had to run everything by them. So the, the movie had really delivered for them and they were very very polite to me and very sweet and they very politely rejected everything I brought actually to them and you know we got into a groove where I would say it'd be great if you could just reject me sooner rather than later because I would really like to move to the next place where I have a shot and they, they were great I can't complain about them. You know, they were polite. And then when I made my second feature, that was an indie. That was an indie with a mini major. So it was a different world than studio world. I'd been hired various places to do a rewrite. Some things had been optioned that I've done by producers. So I was busy working here and working there. And I directed some TV episodes in that period as well. So, yeah, I had a good time. It was fun. When did you enter the world of academia? I was recruited to come and replace a directing teacher who'd gotten a job and wanted to quit his class. And I had a friend there who taught there and also who I think was running the director's track or helping supervisor and said, you'd be great at this. You could do this in this class. Most of them are doing, are interested in comedy. You should come in and do this. So I tried it. It was fun. I was making my own schedule then because I was probably either spec writing or I was writing on a deal that where I didn't have very many meetings. I didn't have to show up. I could take an afternoon a week and uh, teach this class. And so they invited me back to do it again. And then my third feature, Cadillac Ranch, got a green light. And I finished out the semester, and then that's 
summer, I went, uh, I shot the film in Austin. Um, that, that's Cadillac Ranch, my third feature. In the fall, they wanted to hire me, but I knew I had to be in the editing room in Century City five days a week. So I kept turning them down and they wouldn't take no for answer and they kept sending me my schedule. It was just nuts. So I don't, I don't even remember if I ended up convincing them that I couldn't do it or maybe I brought in a partner to do it with me so I could show up every few weeks. At any rate, or they moved it tonight. I can't remember, but basically I would say the semester or two after that, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I was teaching two classes there and I was a full-time lecturer, but I only had to be there from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I could go to meetings, I could cast a movie, I could even co-write with a partner or supervise a writer. I could even consult on a TV pilot. It didn't really affect and my schedule. And if I was directing a TV show, I could invite my students to the set for class that day in lieu of giving it at USC. And nobody complained about that. They love that. But you can do that at USC. You really can't do that most other places. But I was lucky to be there. And I was there for 11 and a half years. And in between, you know, I'd make a movie or somebody else would make a movie and I'd cover them. Or I had a whole bunch of rewriting jobs during that period. I did TV, like I said, bring the class there. It worked out pretty good. It worked out well. I liked it. And then I got recruited to go teach at Columbia College and to consult, to build a, uh, a professional level of directing classes and screenwriting classes. So I, I felt like I wanted a little break from Los Angeles at that point. So I thought I'd try Chicago again for a little while. So I went back. I kept my house in Santa Monica, rented out rented it out and I went uh, to Chicago, rented a really beautiful loft. Oh, and then I bought a really great loft on the South Loop and walked to work every day. Oh, it was great. And the first two years was so great. Um, They were mild winters. And so I just thought, hey, no big deal. I got no problem with the cold. I got my cashmere floor length coat. I can big wrap the collar around my face. I got my Uggs. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good to go. Year three, forget about it. It was one of the coldest years on record. And this was the first year of the lightning blizzards. And by this point, I'm living on the 13th floor in this giant old uh, building the transportation building. And so I can see the sky. I see the weather coming at me at a full bank of windows on two sides to the east and to the south. And, you know, I saw everything and there'd be just lightning in the sky and horizontal snow uh, swirls hitting my windows. And I thought, this is simply too much. 
for anyone to endure. <laughs> I have to go somewhere. So within the next couple of years, I took my time and I just put feelers out to see where I might go next. But Goldilocks without the happy ending, I moved from the place that was way too cold to the place that was way too hot, which was Miami, Florida. <laughs> and now I'm in Sarasota. I, you know, I'm in a much more beautiful spot. It's gorgeous where I am. I'm in a botanical garden that they built some houses in. It's just adorable. I swear every morning, just beautiful pools. It's really great. So it's very nice. But I do feel like I'm on the edge of the universe, which is a convenient place to be in the age of COVID. You know, if you really want to stay out of the plague, you go to this little, tiny, very unpopulated corner of uh, on the edge of the continent. <laughs> it, it's, you know, I can definitely isolate. But I miss L.A. and I miss New York. I really do. And I've been a visiting professor for a while at American University's uh, School of Communications, Film and Media Arts Division in Washington, D.C. And I love Washington, D.C. And I've been living between Washington, D.C. and Sarasota, Florida. I'm still teaching there, but I don't get to cool off in Washington, D.C. <laughs> at all. I miss that, and I love D.C. Oh, it's such a great place to live. I love it. Love, love, love it. Great restaurants. I hadn't finished eating my way through D.C. when COVID hit, and I had to go home. I miss the place. I miss New York, miss L.A., are you still writing? Mm -hmm. I've been helping a friend rewrite a web series for a streaming service. And if it gets picked up, I'll be writing one. So I'm already working kind of on a few of those. And I've been writing some fiction because it's just so much easier than screenplays. But I help people with their screenplays. I know that I... I also put feelers out, said, if you need someone to consult, if you need a pair of fresh eyes, you want a good set of notes, you know, reach out to me. So I've been doing stuff like that. The Zoom room is really kind of eats so much time, but I'm, I'm trying to sort of fence off a certain amount of time each week when I can just write and read and not be doing school or consulting on other people's work. All right, we are back, and we are talking about just one of the guys. And I was trying to find just how far back in time transvesticism has shown up in theater and movies. And 
it goes all the way back to the beginning, folks. I mean, especially this whole idea of female characters being played by men on stage, this whole idea of like not allowing women to be theatrical actors. So it, it's just the entire history of uh, all theater. So yeah, that, that's how it goes. So but even before Twelfth Night came around, and I'm curious how they played Twelfth Night with a man playing a woman playing a man. It's kind of like Victor Victoria, right? Right. Yeah, that's what it reminded yeah. me of. <laughs> yeah, it goes back. I mean, it goes, you know, uh, in, in my art practice, I've uh, made a lot of uh, like supercut films. And one of the films that I made, uh, you know, 15 years ago or so was a was I called Equal Plus Opposite. And it's all reactions, it's all collections of reactions of characters reacting to trans and gender variant characters in film. And it goes all the way back to the beginnings of film. The first film that I pulled was 1915, this film called Florida Enchantment uh, that was made by an elder Barrymore of the Barrymore clan, you know. And, uh, you know, there's Buster Keaton jokes about this. Like there's Lube, there's Lubitsch films, which look at these, at these things. And it just like, it keeps, you know, it, it perpetuates. This has been going on for a long time in cinema alone. You know, these anxieties, which this film elides a lot of, which I think is so interesting. Yeah, there's this pretty great film with Tilda Swinton called Orlando by uh, by Sally Potter based on the uh, Virginia Woolf book that I highly recommend. I love that uh, movie. Yeah, and, and, and Swinton in that is just phenomenal. That transformation, you know, from male to female and then back, I think, at one point. It's just, yeah, oof. it's a heck of a performance I think should have gotten a lot more attention at the time. Uh, and uh, I <laughs> I also really enjoy, like, kind of uh, in the less dramatic sense, uh, Nathan Lane in the final third of the birdcage when he decides to play the mother i think that's very entertaining but on the flip side you do have a couple of really uh, stinkers i i by no rain you mentioned ladybugs i don't know if that's something from your teen years that that you liked uh it just exists it, it i acknowledge its existence <laughs> but it's i mean it's part of the milieu yeah, no, it de- it definitely is, and it, you know that was something that I you know watched and didn't enjoy. And there's also a, mo- a movie I probably will never see that I just found out about. It's 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 called Just One of the Girls with Corey Haim, and I was like, ooh, yeah, that doesn't look good. But it's I mean it's part of this like little clutch of films that were that were doing these things and but you know I, allegedly through you know whatever through the looking glass there's a, you know there's another film that came out in like 1987 called He's My Girl where the pretense is this male male rock star isn't going to be a rock star and so dresses up as a woman so he can be successful you know and it's like it's it's you know whatever it's an 80s comedy and those movies are doing something very different than this is, but it's still part of like, it's part of that discussion. And it's these eighties anxieties. I even look at like, I mean, Yentl is definitely part of that trajectory, even though that's a lot more dramatic and, and, and is doing something, I think a lot more along the lines of what just one of the guys is, or um, there's another uh, film called Sahara with Brooke Shields, where Brooke Shields is playing like a, you know, a character who's passing as a man, you know, to do some investigative work. I think it's so interesting. There's so many invest investigative roles where women are investigating as men, you know, um, whereas the alternative usually tends to be like, I need to be able to be more performative. You know, um, I'm 
in the core isn't the what is the Corey Haim one? I can't remember what the plot line of that one is. I don't. I think he wanted to be a cheerleader or something along those. Or maybe he, want, he was trying to impress a girl and wanted to be uh, friends with her, or probably more than friends, of course. And then decides to join the cheerleading team. I barely watched the trailer. It was really uncomfortable and gross. I don't know. I didn't. It's something like I was like, oh, I don't think I'll ever watch that. Unlike something like Some Like It Hot, which I've probably watched like a dozen times at this point yes, and find endlessly wonderful. It doesn't sound like it's any sort of Juana man. There's so many of these movies. I just was rewatching the reveal from uh, She's the Man and I forgot that I don't think that the reveal really is very true in that I don't think that in the rest of the movie she's wearing these fake eyebrows and fake sideburns. And then she actually pulls the short hair wig off. And I'm like, I don't think you would be wearing a wig the entire time. That should be your hair, you know? So she does all of that, plus then lifts up her top. And I forgot, we do not see her breasts. She just holds it up, and it's just the face, and you can see that she's holding her top up. And that it's more that it's really a a straight-on shot, but the way that it's framed, it's like, okay. And then you get a lot of reactions from Channing Tatum on that and it's and he's just completely flummoxed. With that, she's removing like more trappings of masculinity with the shorter hair, with the thicker eyebrows and with the sideburns. And I'm like, okay. So really doing it up. And yeah, I don't think that uh you got all of that in Twelfth Night. And it's interesting, there was a really good article I was reading comparing She's the man and even talking a little bit about uh, 10 things I hate about you. And then also just one of the guys. And then there was another film called motocrossed, which kind of falls between she's the man and just one of the guys, both in timeline. And, and also there are allegedly scenes that are more just one of the guys than 12th night. And I was like, Oh, well that's interesting. And, um, I found a copy of it, but unfortunately I was unable to find the time to watch it. But, um, it's a Disney original. And after having watched a lot of Disney originals for, uh, Chris Stashie's podcast, I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm ready to go back there again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta be in the mood for those. Well, I mean, Disney's got Mulan too. You know, there's a lot of uh, Disney's not a, uh, I mean, well, isn't she's the man? I mean, that seems like it's probably. Disney adjacent, isn't it? Yeah, it feels like maybe, a, I don't know, a touchstone or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, they're part, they're part of the discussion as well. Yeah, you, you went back to one of the classic ones with uh, some Like It Hot. I mean, and yeah, again, it's like now we're on the run and we have to do this as women. We can't be on the run as, as men. We have to find yet another way to, to hide our identities. Oh, boy. You just made me think of nuns on the run. There you ah. go. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, this is a rabbit hole. You will keep digging, and you will just keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper, and you'll start thinking of these characters. Like, even, Rain, when you brought up the Jeffersons, like, my mind immediately went to, like, okay, well, this guy comes back, and, and I was wondering, like, the person who comes back into George's life, was that played by a man or a cis female? It was played by a cis woman, 
which was another thing that really like sat with me at the time because, you know, really, I mean, you know, I think we're, we're at a time now where the, the discussion has advanced sufficiently to where, you know, we're saying, well, trans actors really should be playing trans parts, not just because they are, um, going to get it right, but also because we need the work. You know, we, 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 it would be nice for us to get the work and, uh, you know, and, and let, let the arrow of Jared Leto doing the, doing the work and the Eddie Redmayne's doing the work. Like eh, those days, those days kind of need to be over because there's plenty of trans talent that, you know, that, that's out there that can be, do these things. But like the thing that was happening at the time was that, you know, a lot of the times where trans characters were being presented, they're being played by men who weren't really necessarily even always trying to pass in any kind of way. You know, here was a situation where somebody who was like, you know, had, had achieved a certain feminine ideal that is like able to like live her life and, and is like, you know, this is probably, you know, again, a late seventies kind of black femininity that uh, is being portrayed. And sure. It would have been great if a black trans woman could have gotten that role. But the thing that was really impactful for me was like, here, you know, here's a vision of possibility for me that doesn't just like seem tragic because, you know, I think one of the things that, especially once you're conscious of your transness, you know, if you're like conscious of it when you're entering puberty, that's a terrorizing kind of a moment, you know, it was like, what is my body going to, you know, it's like a Cronenberg movie that I'm living, you know, like, what is my body going to do to me? And, uh, you know, how can I stop that? I feel like I got lucky, but that's one of the reasons that I personally needed to transition as early as possible, where, you know, because I'm like, if I can mitigate, you know, the damage that like, uh, hormones might be doing to my body, then maybe I won't feel as bad, you know, uh, as, as I might later on. Yeah. I think, you know, we're, we're at a point, like I said, where I, I would love, I would love more trans roles to be like going to trans actors than, than have been. And we want to see more prestige, uh, roles for, for us as well. I don't think that's impossible for somebody who's not trans to play a trans character, We've had a hundred plus years of it. I documented that in my movie. If you watch the film Disclosure, we've got a very long history of, of people who are not trans speaking for trans characters. And, you know, we, we can shift that dialogue now. We can. So we should. Yeah. And I think the show Sense8 has an incredible trans actor. And uh, more recently, HBO's Euphoria is another example, too. The reason why I asked about the Jeffersons was because I think that was a little bit of a trope for a while as far as the whole, we served together in the war and now you're back and you are a woman. Uh, you know, you have transitioned in those periods between, between when I knew you then and when I know you now. And what, what's the matter with you? You were such a masculine man. You were a Marine or whatever. I know that like there was a, uh, a character who, you know, we, we constantly praise a lot of what Barney Miller is doing in, in the Barney Miller podcast that I do. But one of the worst parts of that show was there was a, uh, and this was not a trans character, but a, a, uh, a cross dresser who 
was just anathema to Wojohowicz. He was just like, I don't understand you. Why do you enjoy doing this? And the guy's like, this is what I do. This is how I, you know, how I enjoy myself. And, you know, Wojo is this big burly Marine. And then it ends up that the guy who he has arrested, and this is when you could get arrested for cross-dressing, that, you know, he was a Marine as well. And it's like, okay, you know, they, like I, I'm trying to remember because I know that I've seen that in several other shows, probably from the same time where you get the character who, you know, you you go to the high school reunion and there's this beautiful woman there. And, oh, it was actually like little Waldo Emerson or whatever. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I remember I used to pick on you, Waldo, kind of thing. And it becomes, you know, and it becomes a scene about the crisis for that character. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's never about the other person. It's always about them. It just, it makes me feel good that now, well, back in 2017, when somebody had a problem with, uh, I can't remember David Duchovny's name, was it Denise on Twin Peaks The Return? When Lynch says, fix your heart or die, it's just like, fuck yeah. I'm glad we are to this point in the world Absolutely. I need to get that on a shirt and just wear it at all times. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be curious to see if they ever come up with the sequel idea. I think they've been batting it around for a long time. And they and uh, more recently, I, I think at like a 30th anniversary screening, they're saying, yeah, we have ideas and we have a script. We just don't know if anyone's going to pick it up or not. But if they realize that, you know, how this has become such a huge cult classic for a lot of people and it means a lot to a lot of people, we think we can st- we, we think we can still do it. And my guess would be it's like a a 30th high school reunion or whatever kind of scenario where they all reunite. But I, I don't know if that would work or not. And I don't know if we need it. I'm, I'm happy with the film just to be as it was and not have a continuing storyline necessarily. Yeah. We don't need to have a sequel of everything, but like, but even as we're talking about, like it would have been really interesting to have like a little series of films, Terry and her best friend are like going off on like wacky adventures, you know, playing off each other. Right. That would have been, that would have been fantastic. Right. That could have been like a, a Romeo and Michelle kind of friendship because it is that kind of close bond. And I think, you know, if you did advance this, like it would be so fascinating to see who in the class actually was trans because they're definitely going to be there. And like, and it wouldn't be Terry. It wouldn't be any of the characters that you would maybe even think. I mean, there, yeah, there would certainly be potential there. And you're right. There is such a good chemistry there between these characters. And I think that's one of the reasons why it has become this classic for us. It wasn't just because they showed it on HBO a thousand times, you know, or that you rented it on VHS. It was that there's something here about these characters that you genuinely care about. There is that chemistry. And yeah, to your point, Rain, I would like to see, okay, what's Terry's does she go to college? Does she continue to be a reporter? Uh, you know, what is the story? You know, does she in 20 years have to then go undercover back in high school and pretend that she's a high school? Oh, wait, no, that's already been done. How do you do, fellow kids? How does she deal with the meltdown of journalism as a profession? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. oh, yeah. You know? no kidding, right? Oh, boy. Yeah. When her newspaper has to close and she's trying to write for uh, uh, an online source and it's just, you know, hey, can you write a list for us about uh, the top 10 uh, trans performances in movies? Exactly. Right. Let's start with Laverne Cox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, how, and you can certainly focus, too, on how 
a, a trans teenager deals with all this in the age of social media. I mean, goodness, you know, it's like people can be so cruel in so many ways. It's like, you know, yeah, bullying all over again. And it's, it's such a challenge. And I, I, you know, I know I was teaching, uh, you know, uh, probably from sixth to 12th graders. And yeah, uh, one of them in particular was just always struggling with, uh, being taken seriously to the point where, you know, my school basically listened to the parents instead of what they wanted in terms of their preferred name. And that was really uh, sad. And I, I, to this day, I always feel empathy for people who struggle with their identity to some degree to the point where they get alienated like that. Yeah, it's not just all wedgies anymore. You know, it's so much more almost psychological terrorism a lot of times. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's a, still a struggle for so many people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's such an interesting place to be because, you know, I think that as difficult it, as it was for me coming up, you know, and, and as like, you know, I think that it's, it's good that there's more resources for, for people that are available. You know, I mean, I, I grew up without, having information readily accessible without internet accessibility. I had to go to the library and sneak information in secret and get it in parcels and sit and watch like hours and hours and hours of the Jeffersons just so I could watch one episode one day and like hope that I could see it again at some point. So that that labor is a lot different now. But I think the heightened general awareness is just as like just as toxic and just as dangerous for i think you know for for people that don't have a lot of resources and don't have don't have a safety net don't have protective parents don't have a protective community you know the terms have just really shifted now more power to any anybody who's exploring that now i want everybody to feel okay and happy and just like not not feel scared not feel scared in the bathroom for crying out loud yeah, I, I feel the exact same way. At the same time, I always I, I would wonder, could they do a sequel all about Sandy and how she wound up in Twin Peaks? That would be that would be interesting if you could sort of just bridge the two. All right, we are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. How much can you know about yourself? You've never been in a fight. He was tired of his job. You want me to prioritize my report? Yeah. Sick of his stuff. The things you own end up owning you. Looking for something new. First rule of Fight Club is do not talk about Fight Club. But he wasn't ready for what he found. From the director of Seven. Brad Pitt, Edward Norton. Little by little, just letting yourself become all the ways you like to be. This is too much. What did you expect? Fight Club. Rated R. Friday, only in theaters. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at David Fincher's Fight Club. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Rain and Jim. So, Jim, what is keeping you busy lately, sir? Well, I'm still going strong with the Directors Club podcast, in which every month I try my best to cover a director's work along with a guest or two. And, of course, next year I hope to finally have you on, Mike. And, uh, yes, I believe in in May I will finally reach episode 200. And I'm, I want to keep going with the show as, as long as I can. We'll see how things go throughout the year. But people can check that out over at directorsclubpodcast.com. And I also help other movie podcasters promote their work over at nowplaynetwork.net, and I sporadically write content for my blog, Voices and Visions, over at voicesvisions.net. And Rain, what's new with you? I am taking a little bit of a break from performance and, and art making for a little bit. I'm rebranding 
December is my rebranding month. I'm overhauling my website, all of my, all of my, my, uh, what public facing material. So, uh, uh, but I've got some really cool things coming up for 2022. I'm going to be recording with my band, Santa Labrada. I've got a couple of, uh, new music projects that are going to be launching. I'm thinking about starting my own little podcast myself. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty excited about what's, what's in store. Um, I just finished my MFA this past spring and uh, in the midst of the pandemic was kind of grueling. And, you know, I've kind of taken a few months to, you know, kind of get my feet back under me and uh, I'm starting to feel feel that. So if you want to keep tabs on me, find me on socials. I'm on all the socials, Rain Alexander and uh, at my website, rain.com, R-A-H-N-E.com. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. To inquire about advertising on the Projection Booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Thank you.